Welcome back to the Back to Blue podcast. I am Naka Kondo, lead editor of Back to Blue, an initiative of Economist Impact and the Nippon Foundation on Ocean Health. As you know, at Back to Blue, we have had a strong focus on looking at chemical pollution in the ocean, which tends to be much less talked about than the highly visible plastics pollution, but which is as equally, if not much more, harmful. We've also published a comprehensive report on the state of marine chemical pollution in the invisible wave, which is available on our website. Today, we'd like to give a chemical pollution deep dive in the construction industry with our wonderful guest, Andrew Crimston, founder and CEO of Washbox. Thanks for coming on to our podcast. So let's start at the beginning. What got you interested and concerned about the role of the construction sector as a source of pollution in marine environments? So, my background is in commercial painting. That's kind of my family's chosen profession. So, my father's a painter, my brother's a painter, I've got uncles that were painters. And so, I kind of fell into that sort of business. And so, I operate a commercial painting business here in Australia. And through my own site experience, was always a little bit staggered about the volumes of wash water that we created by washing our tools. And then this whole ocean impact kind of story emerged in the green building sector. And I started to become aware of the limitations of sewer treatment and some of the impacts that were emerging in aquatic environments through discharges from sewer treatment plants. And then you kind of put two and two together and you think, well, hang on, I'm washing my paintbrushes into the drain. And it seems from the information around that the drains that go to sewers don't really make the waste disappear. All of that waste ends up in the environment. And so what am I really doing? And so when you start to think that through and we started to participate in some sort of larger construction type projects and see the volumes of waste, not just from painters, but also plastering and tiling and rendering and other trades that get washed into these sewer connected drums on construction sites, it just kind of sparked my interest. And I thought, well, maybe this is a problem that needs a solution. And as it turns out, it is. What are some of the implications of this pollution? Back to Blue are very focused on where the science is and where data is out on chemical pollution in the ocean. What do we know about the toxicity and the effects of some of these chemicals that are entering the water system? So, there's not a lot of information around the downstream effects specifically of these types of products. If we look at a couple of specific items that there is, so PFAS, for instance. PFAS is a contaminant in a whole lot of products, including paint. Now, it's not to suggest that all paints have PFAS, but certainly some do. It's been used in paints for a long time in terms of its ability to be stain resistant as one indication of its use. But PFAS also takes other forms as well, which aid paint in its application phase. And then not just in terms of paint, but other sort of polymer modified type products like renders and masonry products that have got resins and, and various other polymers in them all have some sort of a chemical makeup. And so there's a couple of things that are important in terms of this. We look at PFAS as one. Another one is titanium dioxide. So titanium dioxide is a white powder essentially that performs a, a function in paint that gives it something called opacity or its ability not to be see-through. Titanium dioxide is also an ingredient in toothpaste, sunscreen, because it's a white powder. I'm not exactly sure of its use in toothpaste, but in sunscreen, I imagine it helps to provide the physical barrier, um, I guess. I don't really know, to be honest. But 
all of the media around titanium dioxide, for instance, which is a problem in sewer discharge because it causes nutrient load in, in wastewaters, and so that causes eutrophication and algae blooms, and so there's a direct link between titanium dioxide and those algae blooms. But all of the available media around titanium dioxide is around toothpaste and sunscreen. But if you were to just do a quick Google of titanium dioxide, you'll quickly find that paint consumes 80% of the available titanium dioxide in the world. And when you think about how much paint is washed out in the global construction industry direct to the sewer treatment plants, I couldn't even guess at the staggering volumes in comparison to the tiny amount of sunscreen that gets used. So there's those two kind of concepts, plus the polymers and, and resins and those types of things. But ultimately, what we're talking about, because it's construction site sewer discharge, it's obviously getting mixed and diluted with wash waters from other places, from domestic environments and also from other industries. We're kind of focused on the limitations of wastewater treatment plants to make waste magically disappear, which obviously they don't do. Wastewater treatment plants just separate liquids from solids, and the liquids go back to the ocean and the solids go to biomass or landfill. Sometimes they're used as fertiliser. So the core concept really is that everything that gets discharged to the sewer ends up in the environment in one way or another. And so I was saying to another colleague recently that there was a pollution incident in Australia a few years ago where a firefighting foam that contained PFAS had been used for training in some of our naval army facilities. That foam had soaked into the ground and contaminated groundwater and there's a bit of a, a major pollution sort of event that had occurred over about 20 years but kind of came to a head a few years ago. And the government carried out a report around essentially trying to identify how did this happen. And when the report was released, they used this term called the precautionary principle and essentially identified that if they really thought about it, they probably knew to a certain extent 20 years ago that this was likely to be a problem. There was enough information around then to give them that indication. Whilst the evidence didn't exist to prove it categorically, that was certainly the indication. And so why did they wait for the evidence to prove it categorically if they had an indicator or a strong indicator 20 years ago that this was likely to be a major problem. And so this is essentially what we're saying, that technology exists commercially to eliminate the discharge of these types of products to the environment. And what we're talking about is a whole range of manufactured construction products. And in the labs where they're created at some of the world's biggest companies, these products are created to last for as long as they can possibly last. We're talking about paint coatings, for instance, are designed to go onto, onto walls and facades of buildings. They're designed to, to be applied in liquid form to the outside of a building, and as it cures to form a plastic film, which is going to last for 40 years in direct sunlight and rain and all of the weather that the planet can throw at it. And so during the application of those paint products, those paints dry on the brushes and the rollers in the paint pots and roller trays and other tools of application. And when we wash those tools underwater, that paint film, which is now a plastic film, essentially a polymer film, breaks away and forms microplastics, which are discharged to the environment. And so the European Union has released a report in October last year, which has highlighted paints now as the largest contributor to microplastic leakage in the world primarily from ships and oil rigs and those types of infrastructures. But the second highest contributor in the category is architectural paints, including specifically from application-based activities. So we've got microplastics, we've got toxins in resins and polymers that 
Some are identified and some are not. We know there's PFAS involved. We know there's titanium dioxide involved. We know there's dyes and inks and all of these other things, which they're not natural elements in the environment typically. And so if we follow the precautionary principle, well, then should we have a belief that if technology exists commercially to prevent the discharge of these solutions to the environment, then should we adopt and enable that technology? Thank you so much for that overview. You've mentioned previously in our correspondence that you've got this data initiative that's pulled together data across 400 or more projects. We'd love to know a bit more about how that came together, how you've gotten hold of that data, and I suppose how you're working with industry to actually get some numbers and some specifics on this. Yeah. So our business is a higher business. And so we have a device called Washbox, which is a closed loop all trades wash station for construction projects. And so we hire that device to major construction projects in Australia, the USA and the UK currently. And that device is off grid essentially on the construction site, except for power. From a water supply and discharge point of view, it's off grid, it's closed loop. And so in a typical construction environment, the contractors will install a 44 gallon drum or something like that connected to the sewer and direct all the trades to wash into that drum using drinking water essentially or a mains water supply. And so that's typically unmetered. There's no control over it. There's no control over water flow rates or discharge levels or anything like that, no pretreatment. It just happens and they go about their business. And so what Washbox does is replace that sewer-connected drum with a closed-loop device that has no plumbing connections at all. And so we take a Washbox to site, and in the case of our larger unit, we'll put 500 litres of water in it. And that 500 litres of water then gets used by the trades to wash their tools. It works as a batch cycle. So when they've exhausted that supply of 500 litres from the holding tank, the system automatically shuts down for 15 minutes and turns that now contaminated wash water back into clean water and solid waste in a series of filter bags. That waste can then be handled on site appropriately and disposed of appropriately as a solid. And so what we do is we eliminate the use of water for tool washing apart from the first 500 litres we use to fill up our system because it's that first 500 litres that gets used every day for the entire project. And because we don't generate any wash water, there's no wash water to discharge, so we eliminate the discharge of wash water. So essentially, for every minute of washing into our system, we eliminate a minute's worth of water use. So if the flow rate on the site is 20 litres a minute, which it typically is when you're washing under a tap, for every minute that wash box gets used, we eliminate 20 litres of water use. And so by an analysis of the time that wash box gets used on the project, and also pump run times and flow meters and various other components in the wash box, we record a whole lot of data. And so that data then gives us an insight into the water that's typically used for tool washing across a whole range of projects. And so we have this data specific to schools, to hospitals, to multi-storey residential buildings, to shopping centres, to office buildings. And so we can use that then to extrapolate across the global industry what the impact of this water use and pollution is. Interesting. How engaged have you found the industry so far in your interactions? And where would you say the industry is at in terms of awareness about the issue and taking tangible steps to address this? Yeah, it's really, really early days. 
In terms of green building, the industry has been focused almost entirely on embodied carbon and what we call the as-built phase. So swapping out standard concrete for low emission concrete or even cross-laminated timber, ensuring that buildings have incorporated into their design waterless urinals or solar panels on the roof, these types of things that reduce the embodied carbon in the building structure and increase its operational efficiency over its lifetime. And so the global industry is really, really good at that. There's still room to improve, but at the moment, they're really good at it. And if you look at the environmental building standards, such as LEED and BREAM and Green Star in Australia, they are almost 100% focused on the as-built situation. And so if you look at the LEED and BREAM kind of high-level environmental certifications, it's all based on what is the building made of and what's its carbon footprint over its lifetime. There's almost zero attention paid to the impact on the environment of the construction phase of that building. How much water do we use during construction? How much waste do we generate during construction? What happens to that waste during construction? All of these factors really should play a much more significant role in the Green Star rating of the building, because even though the building might exist for 40 years, the environmental impact, particularly on the local community during construction, can be significant. And so it really must play a broader role. So with that being said, what the industry has focused on is the as-built scenario, which comes through design and architects and then material choice. And what they haven't focused on is the impact of the construction phase itself. So it's very, very early days. I kind of regularly say my car can park itself. And we have this amazing technology in other sectors of our lives. You know, I can turn my washing machine on from my holiday flat in Rome. But when I go to a construction site as a tradesperson, I'm directed to wash my tools over a rusty 44-gallon drum that's plumbed into the sewer using drinking water. In 2024, with the green building conversation and climate change and environment, biodiversity and nature positive and all of this sort of stuff, you know. So there is an enormous gap in the market's awareness of the impact both on their own productivity, safety and housekeeping, as well as the environmental impact. And so in our reach outs to the industry, we're trying to tell a big story. We get pushback in some sectors and some embrace us with open arms. You'll find that some organisations, major global constructors, have their own ESG targets or environmental targets to save water, for instance, or eliminate pollution as it is generated on their projects, and others just don't, depending on the organisation themselves and the types of sectors they work for. You know, are they doing government work? Are they doing urban regeneration projects or just doing low-cost housing or whatever it might be? So there's an amazing opportunity for education and improvement across the industry in this way. Yes, regulation and policy are big factors in driving decision-making. Has there been anything from the regulatory or policy standpoint that's been done that has been effective in increasing the pressure on companies in this area? Not that we see. Regulations already exist in most global jurisdictions which prohibit the sewer discharge of trade waste. It's a little complex because it's typically governed by the EPA in part, and also by the Water or Sewer Authority. And so the Sewer Authority is typically responsible for the inputs to their assets, and then they're responsible to the EPA for the outputs to the environment, and the EPA typically holds them accountable to that. In places like London and New York, you've got combined sewers, which represent an additional problem in that during rain events, you've got wet weather overflows that, that bypass sewer treatment. 
and those are controlled by the water authorities, but obviously have more impact on regulatory kind of issues with regard to the EPA. And there's lots of publicity about that, and most global jurisdictions are trying their best to alleviate those impacts by building new infrastructure and coming up with remedies, but a proper solution is a very, very long way down the track. In terms of opportunities, what we're finding is that there's a couple of relevant stakeholders here. So most of these organisations will be international standards certified to quality and health and safety and also environment, so the 14,001 environmental certification. We've just had our first incident globally that we have registered where a company in the United Kingdom has received a non-conformance under their ISO 14001 recertification for the unlawful discharge of trade waste to the sewer. So that's an area where we think that the industry certifiers can get involved. The regulators being the EPAs and, and the water authorities already have the mechanisms in place to enforce or already have the regulations in place that are able to be enforced, but there's just no enforcement activity. So it's really being left up to the industry to self-manage and the global construction industry operates on very low margins. It's a highly consolidated industry with some major players owning lots of the major corporations globally. Unless they're driven by developers to meet certain standards and have the developers kind of get their fingers down to detail in contracts, the construction companies are really left up to their own devices. And whilst we operate in a competitive landscape and a risk-averse landscape, their inclination is always to do what they did yesterday, even if it's a bit how you're going, because they know the risk profile of it. And even though it might not be ideal, you get lots of parties in the industry, particularly at site level, that are just not motivated to innovate and not motivated to take the risk on something new. I can see how Washbox has a large role to play. How does it stand out from perhaps other similar products and technologies in the market? Washbox is not the only device that does this. It's the only device offered as hardware as a service, and it's the only device that captures the data and is available for every trade. There are other trade-specific devices that are quite cheap and rudimentary that companies and trade applicators can purchase and try and self-manage. But certainly what we're delivering is a solution. We're delivering the opportunity for the construction industries to take responsibility for their own environmental impact. Thank you, Andrew. This is great. Back to Blue are also trying to look into ocean sewage pollution in the coming year, and this has been absolutely fantastic to hear from you. So thank you. That was Andrew Crimston, founder and CEO of Washbox. And thank you for listening. Back to Blue, an initiative of Economist Impact and the Nippon Foundation are hoping to spearhead a coordinated global response to marine pollution and design a roadmap by 2025 to close the marine pollution data gap. We're publishing our first official draft of the roadmap next month during Economist Impact's World Ocean Summit. To learn more, download our discussions paper, The Zero Pollution Ocean, a call to close the evidence gap. Do visit our website at backtobluinitiative.com.